0: this place on Sunday, and I haven't seen a lot of that crowd that's going to be here tomorrow, so I told the preacher he'd better introduce me over again. But I'll preach my sermon tomorrow morning, that I always preach to the morning glory. Don't tell them, but I'll preach my morning glory sermon in the morning, you know, for the... Folks that feel like they've paid God off between 11 and 12 o'clock, and they say goodbye, God will see you next Sunday. So, uh, but you're here, and so tonight, we're not going to stay long. I want you to get a good night's rest, so you'll be able to sit for Sunday. Reader's Digest carried an article some time ago on deep breathing. It went on to say that we use only part of our lungs, There's plenty of lung space within us and plenty of air around us, more than we ever make the most of, and that we ought to use to the fullest both our resources within and without. After all, breathing is pretty important. Everything depends on it. When you quit breathing, you quit. And we're never more than a few breaths away from death and eternity. We read in Genesis 2.7 that God made man out of the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Man is a God-inspired being, in the sense that he's a God-breathed being. We're not just matter, we're living souls, and what makes the difference is the breath of God. Job says, The Spirit of God hath made me in the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Then the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that God breathed again in the scriptures. It says all scriptures inspired of God, and that word means it's God breathed. Now there's ordinary human inspiration in great literature and great music, but that's not this. There's something about this book that's different from Shakespeare and Emerson and everything else that ever has been written. This is more than the book it's not only a book, it's breath. It's the breath of God. I'm not interested in theories of inspiration. This is God's Word, not just in spots or wherever it happens to speak to me at the time, but in its entirety, any time and all the time. And uh, all of it is inspired. I heard of a businessman who was asked to preside at a religious affair, and he got a little mixed up in the terminology of the meeting, and when they'd read the scriptures, he got up and said, if there are no corrections or additions, the scriptures will stand as read. Well, I believe in that. I believe they ought to stand as read, because there are no corrections, and there are no additions, and God said, "Cursed are we, if we add to it or take from it. In John 20:22, 20, there was another breathing. He breathed on them. Our risen Lord breathed on his disciples and said, "Receive ye the Holy Ghost." Now that was prophetic, because the Holy Spirit didn't come till Pentecost. Every Christian is God-breathed, because when he's born again, God breathes into him—not merely the breath of physical life, as He breathes into everybody, but the Holy Spirit and eternal life, and he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there's also a breathing of the Holy Spirit for power and the infilling of the Spirit of God. The church is a God-breathed institution, and it's different from anything else on earth. It wouldn't have lasted this long if it hadn't been. No other organization could stand what the church stands if any other organization had its Few of its membership that supported it and backed it up and came to its meetings That all go out of business. No secret order could make it. No labor union could make it. Nothing else could make it. Only the church, because the church is of God and God's going to keep it here and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is God-breathed, but not all churches are empowered by the Holy Spirit for power in service and testimony. Over in the book of Ezekiel, you read about that vision of the uh, dry bones. You saw a valley full of bones, and they were very dry. And uh, it says that the Lord said to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And he answered, O Lord God, thou knowest." us. I've stood many a time on Sunday morning and felt just like that. I've looked over the crowd and said, Lord, can, of course, I reverse it a little bit. Can these dry bones live? And then I felt like saying, Lord, thou knowest." But it says here, and you have breath several times in this passage. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, verse 5, and ye shall live. Verse 6, I'll put breath in you, and ye shall live. And verse 8, And the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. And verse 9, Then said he to me, Prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, Son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded, and the breath came into them. All the way through, these bones needed breath. Now, it's very interesting that uh, the word for uh, spirit and the word for wind is the same in both Hebrew and Greek. And uh, the breath of God... The Spirit of God is the breath of God, and the greatest need in the church today is breath. Dr. Phillips says the church today is so prosperous that it's fat and out of breath, and so organized that it's muscle-bound. And I think that's a perfect description of the present professing church. I see a lot of puffing and blowing. I see a lot of exhaling without inhaling. We're trying to give out without taking in. That won't work physically. It won't work spiritually. Because if you quit breathing in, you soon quit, period. Dr. Wilbur Chapman, the evangelist of a generation ago, asked Dr. F. B. Meyer, that great saint of the Lord, why is my experience so fluctuating and so intermittent Dr. Bauer simply asked him, have you ever tried to breathe out three times without breathing in once? And that's all he asked him. And he got the idea. Now we have artificial respiration mouth to mouth when somebody drowns. And the church is only in for a lot of artificial respiration today too. And trying to blow inspiration into the church by various devices. And sometimes we revive the organism temporarily and resuscitate the corpse momentarily. But it's not real revival, for it's just blowing human breath into the carcass. A lot of our church work today is just artificial respiration. It's not the work of the Holy Spirit. And there are plenty of artificial respiration experts around these days, making a living, blowing ordinary human inspiration into churches that are out of breath, It's the hardest thing in the world to try to uh, draw out of the human heart what's not in it. I watch song leaders over America sometimes trying to get a song out of hearts that isn't in there. And what frustrating business that is. It's just an exercise in futility. And we're spending a lot of time in the church today trying to pull out what God never put in. You see what's down in the well will come up in the bucket. There isn't anything in the wells, not coming up in the bucket. And if there's no song in them, you're trying to pull out a love for Christ that isn't there, a love for the church that isn't there, a love for souls that isn't there, trying to get them to exhale when they've never inhaled is absolutely impossible. And that's what we're trying to do by and large today with all kinds of study courses and promotion programs. I go to meetings where they've got all across the platform all sorts of diagrams, you know. So many dollars we want to raise and so many folks we want to baptize and all the rest of it. And you have the unhappy feeling. I was one of those some time ago. And this dear brother was up there doing his best to try to stir up the jaded spirits of these language saints out there in the congregation. Some of them were half asleep. And uh, some of them got up and left. And this poor fellow... Uh, He just wasn't getting anywhere fast. Uh, Longer he talked, the less he said. And uh, I said, uh, instead of all this, what this crowd needs is to get right with God. And if they had a real revival, they'd want to do what he's talking about. Now, there are two verbs here. He breathed on them and said, receive ye. Now, that's that's the breathing uh, of God upon us, and that's our receiving. You see, he must breathe into us, he must breathe upon us, and we must breathe into us what he breathes upon us. There's the giving and there's the receiving. We have a term today, open-endedness. And uh, we ought to be open toward God for strength and open toward man for service. And Dr. Phillips says in his introduction to the book of Acts that those early Christians were open on the Godward side. I like that. And when you're open on the Godward side, you have something to give on the Manward side. Uh, A lake that has no inlet will soon be exhausted, and a lake that has no outlet will soon be stagnant. The church at Jerusalem was a Jewish church, and it uh, died practically because it was an ingrown, closed corporation. They were so busy just congratulating each other that they had no time to reach out in the community and God had to send persecution and scatter them everywhere and they went everywhere preaching the word. Maybe that's what ought to happen now. We call it involvement today and some of it when it comes to a lot of this social action I'm not particularly interested in. But the word involvement's all right. The church needs to get involved. Jesus said, go out into the world as the Father has sent me. Even so send I you. My father had a grocery store up in the country and he used to get in his box of garden seeds, you know, before spring came and I could hardly wait to see the box open and it was a pretty array of the beans and the beets and the tomatoes and all in their pretty packages. But we wouldn't have had a bite to eat if those uh, uh, seeds had stayed in those pretty packages. The packages had to be torn up and thrown away and the seeds put in the old dirty ground and died. And come up again. Many a time on Sunday morning, the crowd looks to me just like that box of garden seeds. Everybody all dressed up and sitting all over the place. And I say, Lord, we've got too much packaged Christianity and not enough planted in Christianity. And we come out on Sunday and on our pretty little packages, but we're not willing to be put into the uh, old earth, as Jesus said, except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone we're so fastidious today we wouldn't touch this sinful world with a 40-foot pole we're all willing to be missionaries after the world's been disinfected but you're the disinfectant you're the soul of the earth it'll never get disinfected if you don't do it you're the agent God has put in this world to disinfect now that doesn't mean the world's going to be converted because it won't the world is not going to be converted. God never started out to do that anyhow. The world isn't going to be Christianized. It ought to be evangelized, but it'll never be Christianized. But the salt ought to permeate it. And when we're afraid to touch it, it has to be rubbed into. Salt has to be rubbed into whatever it's supposed to affect. Salt never did anybody any good in the salt shaker. It never does any good until it gets out of the salt shaker. We build our churches these million-dollar salt shakers on the corners all over America, but till the salt gets out of that salt shaker, it's practically useless. You see, we're depositories, but we're dispensers. A salt shaker is a depository. You put salt in it, but it's a salt dispenser. Now, when the church becomes only a depository of the gospel and the grace of God, not a dispenser, then it's defeating its own purpose. Now, we're not willing to be rubbed into a decaying society. It goes against the grain. The very fact that Jesus called us the soul of the earth he implies that the earth's corrupt and society's rotten and it is. Modern society is in a state of decomposition. You have to almost hold your nose to move through society today. And only the presence of God's people keeps it from complete putrefaction. And when the church is removed, the corruption will be complete. Once in a while, we have somebody who's willing to be mixed into it, not not identified with it in the sense of fellowship, but association, even as Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. I mentioned Charlie Alexander, the great gospel singer. Charlie Alexander was a bachelor for a little more than the usual span, and... uh, Once he was in a meeting, and uh, people were kneeling at the front. And he noticed an elegantly dressed young lady come up and kneel beside some poor girl off of the street. She was a pitiful creature to look at. And this elegantly dressed lady put her arm around this poor wreck of a girl, And Charlie looked down and saw that, and he said, now, whoever that is, is somebody. And he met her, fell in love with her, and married her. And she was Helen Cadbury of Cadbury Candy, which is still just about as good candy as there is. Wealthy and uh, a real Christian. I heard Mrs. Alexander. Speak in those days after the death of Charlie Alexander, she married Dr. A.C. Dixon, the great Baptist pastor of Spurgeon's Tabernacle. He grew up in the county next to me in North Carolina, one of the greatest of preachers. But Helen Cadbury Alexander <laughs> Dixon was a wonderful, wonderful character, and she wasn't ashamed to put that high priced sleeve. Around that poor wreck of a girl. Now that's, that's the soul getting rubbed into the need of this world. And Jesus said, go ye, but he first said, tear ye. I'm afraid we're trying to get folks to go who aren't ready today. And the main business of the church is not to evangelize. It's to get ready to evangelize. And we're trying to evangelize when we're not ready. And sending a lot of church folks out, don't know what to say when they get where they're going. And some of them have never been dedicated to the Lord and would do more harm than good, sending some laymen out if they don't know the Lord. He first said, get ready, and then go. You need to look out the window at the need of the world, but before you look out the window, you need to look in the mirror and see yourself as God sees you in the light of his word. And then you'll say, like Isaiah, woe is me, and then you'll say, send me out there. But you have to get the order straight. Now, uh, Jesus used the figure of water, John 7, 39, the verse that had more to do in my life with the matter of the filling of the Holy Spirit than anything else was found right there. He spake of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. And he said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth in me from within him shall flow rivers of living water. You see, there's your open toward God and then open toward the need of man, you have both. You have the receiving, you have the giving. You have the openness toward God, let him drink. You have the openness toward men from within him shall flow rivers of living water. Have you ever seen a large electric light sign with some of the letters out? Sometimes it makes rather amusing reading some of the letters out. And then other letters are like that. They are not uh, working right well. Most of the churches today, their memberships, pretty much like that. I don't know how many members here are out. A lot of them out tonight, and I mean out, period. And I don't know, I don't know how many you've got that are like that. Something wrong, you see, they're not plugged into the socket of divine power properly. And that's the tragedy of these days. Now my Lord said, if you will come to me, I'll equip you for what you've got to do. The church has to get out in the world. You didn't have to read Bonhoeffer to find that out. We've known that ever since the Lord said it. But let's get ready to go. Now, this brings back the deep breathing exercise. It's trying to get the church to breathe out before it's ever breathed in. That's impossible. Never mind all these books on how to do it. If you're going to read books on how to be filled with the Spirit, you probably never will be because everyone will have a different uh, formula for it. Dr. A.W. Tozer said he bought a book on deep breathing, got interested in the subject, said I'd have had a chest like a barrel if I'd have kept on breathing, but I got to reading the book and I never did get back to my deep breathing. And I find that when you get a hold of some of these books on how to live the victorious Christian life, and how to be filled with the Spirit, one of them will have five steps and the other seven steps and another 10 steps and you'll get the step, and so that you never get anywhere. After all, just up and down, you know, not going anywhere in particular. So uh, uh, the most important thing is just to to go at it the way that's most natural for you. I've read of a mother bear who was teaching her cubs how to walk. One of them, according to the fable, said to her, uh, Mother, which foot shall I put forward first? the old mother bear said, shut up and walk. And I think that's a very good rule for Christians today. You can worry about just, how do I do it? Well, go ahead, go ahead, by simple faith. And the Lord will guide you. And just as physically, now most of us live by short breaths. This piece in Reader's Digest said that. You know that. Why, you don't use most of your lungs. We gasp our way through life, most of us. And most Christians gasp their way through the Christian life. Just little short breaths of the grace of God when we ought to breathe deeply. That's why we've got spiritual emphysema and asthma and everything else, because we don't breathe deeply of the grace of God. So we go through gasping. We're living in a day of psychedelic emotionalism and LSD and trips into the world of fancy and hallucination and some of it has gotten into the church and uh, we're having some weird spiritual trances now and churches are split by extremism about the gifts of the holy spirit and then there are some folks that put experience above the scripture i uh, ran into a group a couple of years ago that uh, emphasized giving your testimony instead of reading the scripture said when you deal with somebody don't read the bible to them that's too preachy Tell them what the Lord's done for you. I believe in telling what the Lord's done for you. But my Bible says faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It doesn't come by your experience. It comes by the word of God. Don't tell them what's happened to you. First of all, you you tell them what God says. Now, if what's happened to you corroborates what God said, that's all right. But begin with the word of God. And any movement that makes the Holy Spirit the figurehead is eccentric because the Holy Spirit was never meant to be the center of any movement. That movement is off-center because the business of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ. He never came to this earth to put himself ahead of the procession. He shall testify of me, Jesus said. We have a good many hungry-hearted preachers and Christians today seeking a deeper experience of God, like a drowning man grabbing at a straw. And the pity of it all is that these counterfeits about the work of the Holy Spirit are a trick of the devil to scare us away from the real thing. People get scared about the tongue's movement, they get scared about this, that, and the other thing, they'll never have any experience, though for fear of the false, we miss the true. We're so scared we get, we'll we get out on a limb, we never go up the tree. Nothing ever happens. So we go gasping our way along when we ought to breathe deep. Now, I've gone from church to church. and uh, I've met pastors and Sunday school teachers and educational men, music men, red in the face, puffing and blowing out of breath. I've never lived in a day when so many of God's servants were out of breath. There's no regular, orderly, devotional life. There's no moment-by-moment conscious appropriation of the living Christ for every need. That's a nice phrase to roll under the tongue, but there's very little of it in actuality. Moment-by-moment, off-looking unto Jesus. The inhaling of power, if you want to put it that way, And, uh, of course, uh, the Reader's Digest article pointed out that, first of all, be sure to exhale all the foul air out of your lungs before you start this deep breathing. And I would say to every Christian, get rid of sin. Get rid of anything that's wrong in your life before. You take in. That's the divine order as well. And then we ought to get out of places where the air is foul. That is, we should not dwell in atmosphere that contaminates. I heard of a dancing couple. that had been all night in a, dancing in a nightclub, and they came up on the street in the morning. And One of them said to the other, What's that I smell? And the other said, Well, that's fresh air. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who live so much in the pollution, and this is a time when you're hearing all about pollution, pollution, pollution we're living in a polluted world, polluted spiritually. And uh, if you dwell in that atmosphere, if you find your entertainment in it, if you find your reading in it, if you find your recreation in it, if you uh, live in it that way, you're going to be polluted and develop spiritual lung cancer, just as you would from uh, cigarettes. And then breathe and receive and drink. Oh, there aren't many people who will go that extra mile of a deeper experience of the Lord. Oh, William Law said, Who am I to lie folded up in a bed late of the morning when the farmers have all gone about their work and I'm so far behind with my sanctification?" You know, it may mean getting up an hour earlier. It may mean dispensing with the funny boys on television. We had a great evangelistic conference uh, with uh, Stephen Olford preaching, and he got under the hides of a lot of Baptist preachers. And I know some that gave up the funny boys and got up earlier to pray. And it made a difference. You can't have everything but if you are willing to give God enough time it'll make a difference I uh, this last uh, summer I was preaching to a crowd of Baptist preachers in eastern Tennessee in the mountains way out there deep in the mountains and every morning I got up and headed for the top of them they didn't believe I'd gone up there and I told them but I was tempted Part of the way up there to come back, because I'm not as young as I used to be, but something said, no, there'll be a break here somewhere, and you can see out. And I kept on going, and I saw light. After a while, we came to a place where the whole country down below broke upon my vision. And I said to myself, the difference is worth the distance. And there come times in the Christian life when you're tempted to be just another ordinary Christian. You say, well, I've gone further than a lot of them. I'm going to stop here. But you didn't get through. But blessed is the man who keeps on pulling when the pulling's hard. When the devil tells you that you've had enough, go back, take it easy, quit reading the Bible, go to bed instead of praying and so on. But the man who presses through a little further, Well, find that the difference it makes is worth the distance. Don't you remember old Elisha when Elijah was going to be translated? Well, Elisha went with him. Elijah came to Bethel and said, now, I'm going there and you can go on back. No, he said, no, I'm going with you. I'm going to Jericho, yeah, but I'm going to go with you. I'm not going back. I'm going over to Jordan. Old Elisha said, I'll be there when you get there. Well, they had a bunch of seminary students along beside the road, it says. And it didn't say seminary, but it amounts to the same thing as School of the Prophet. And these boys were good boys, but they weren't about to go on, you know. They they asked questions and said, Do you know your master's going up today? And Elisha said, Hold your peace. And that's a good thing to say to these fellows that never go anywhere, but stand along the road and want to talk about it, but they never know anything about it. Well, Elisha said, I'm going through. I'm going to be there when it happens. And those boys didn't believe anything had happened anyway. They said, better send somebody out, out to look for Elijah. Maybe he's got lost in the mountains somewhere. That sounds like a seminary student, doesn't it? <laughs> and old Elisha said, I'm going through. And when he got over Jordan and the horses and the chariots came for Elijah, you know what happened? That old mantle fell on Elisha. And he was ready for business. There aren't many people today that will dare to rise above the average and go that extra mile and breathe deeply. You just say, well, I'll gasp along like everybody else. I mentioned Dr. F.B. Meyer. He was a man who was truly filled with the Spirit. In 1887 at Keswick in England, He said we'd had a conference all week and everybody was worn out and I was too tired to pray and too tired to feel and too tired to think, too tired to do anything. And yet, I realized there was a need in my life and I didn't know what to do and said I climbed a little mountain and I said, Lord, I'm too tired to pray. But I still realize I need something and it isn't gained by long prayers. What shall I do? And the Lord said to him, In his inmost soul, he felt that God said, just as you took me for forgiveness a long time ago and salvation, so take me for whatever you need now. And he said, Lord, as I breathe this whiff of air on the top of this little mountain, I receive, I breathe in thy Holy Spirit. And when he went back down the mountain, some of them asked him what had happened and so on. No particular feeling. He hadn't gone up there for feeling. He'd gone up for feeling. That's what old Len Broughton said when he went forward in a meeting of another denomination. He was a Baptist. And some folks thought he oughtn't have gone forward, but he meant business. He settled with the Lord. Well, I'm not laying down any one, two, three, four, five for you to do, but if you get serious enough, you'll get through. You don't have to outline steps. When I went to Charleston as pastor, that old, old church that was organized in 1683 with all its history, its doors to every pew and its quaint old pulpit and the fact that some of its first members had been converted under George Whitfield, I was smitten with a sense of my need, and I didn't know who to go to. I didn't know any preacher to talk to. I was uh, not married at that time, I couldn't talk to a wife about it. I didn't know who to talk to, except the Lord. There was a dear old saint in town, Granny Russell, she knew God. and She gave me a book, The Deeper Experiences of Famous Christians. And it did more for me than any book I've ever gotten hold of, of its kind. And I took it back to my room, and I couldn't go to sleep till I had read it, and then I couldn't go to sleep because I had read it. And the Lord led me to the blessed truth of John 7, 39. If any man thirst, thirsting, coming, drinking, believing, overflowing. That's what I got out of that. You don't have to to see it in that order, but that's the way it looked to me, and that's the blessing that the Lord broke to my own heart. The only thing that I would remind you of is that the first thing is if any man thirsts. And thirsting isn't just wanting to drink water. Thirsting is wanting water so desperately that nothing else meets your need. It's not just wanting to drink water. Plenty of people, oh sure, I'd like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, they don't. That's the trouble today. Our poor, superficial, shallow people. Oh, yes, I'd like to be a victorious Christian, but you know they don't because five minutes later they're talking about something else and they don't. But you get somebody that means business. that thirsts if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The promise is for thirsty people. I will pour out water upon him that is thirsty. The word of God says. So I'll leave it at that tonight. You can't give an invitation to this kind of thing because you don't settle this by walking down an aisle and shaking hands with a preacher. As if something has to be settled all by yourself somewhere, and it takes time. And only people, just as I said the other night, that are desperate, only, only those people, will travel that extra mile when the going gets rough and you get to a place where it levels off up that mountainside somewhere, and you say, this is a pretty good place to stop. And yet if you go on, to the best, and don't stop with the good. The view will break upon you. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears is made. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. I leave it with you. I want you to turn to 167. As a rule, we don't know that song. We know the other one, 174. They're both written by the same man. And uh, Mr. McKinney wrote the music to 174 and Mr. Jackson the other. And, uh, but I kind of like 167 and we, you're good enough singers, you, you can sing it anyhow. Maybe the, maybe the instrumentalist would play it over once for us to kind of get the go of it. 167, it's a prayer. And I want you to uh, think seriously because it, it's exactly what I'm talking about. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life and youth, that I may love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Would you play it for us, please, first? <laughs> be our closing prayer. Let's get <laughs>